And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are live from the bunker. It is the 27th of October. Halloween is just around the corner. The year has flown by. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor-in-chief here at SciFiForMe.com, SciFiForMe.tv. We are broadcasting live to Odyssey, YouTube, and Facebook. Happy to have you all here. The live chat is open. Comments are active. You can join us on all the social media. You can listen to this show as a podcast. We're available on a number of different podcast platforms. And uh, it's good to have all of our listeners from all around the world. Russia, Iceland, New Zealand, Germany, Ireland, Canada. And a few people in the United States. Happy to have all of you here with us. And if you want to leave us a comment or send us an email, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com is how you can do that. We also invite you to sign up for our newsletter. All right. So having said all of that, we did a promo for Foreign Bodies. It is coming back for a new season starting on Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Mr. Harvey, Mrs. Walker, back to talk about horror made in France is where we're going to go next. In the meantime, we're going to talk horror here with uh, a special guest. And uh, to to help me uh, with all of this, Christopher Hoffman is with us as well. Christopher, how are you doing today, sir? I'm I'm doing fine, Jason. Hopefully you're doing well. Uh, Hanging in there, yeah. Okay, now, okay, that's that's doing some weird things. Let's bring in our guest, Scream Queen Brink Stevens. Hello, young lady, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. It's my favorite season of the year. I like it better than Christmas. Well, and it's good to see you again. We had a chance to talk uh, a number of years ago. You were here in town shooting, uh, a, I guess it was a short film, and uh, I got a chance to interview you for uh, for Casey Stage Magazine, and it's been forever and a day feels like since since we talked last. How you been in the meantime? Well, I'm good. Yeah, that film was Z Line. It was a feature film. I was shooting in Kansas City, and uh, you know my career has gone on for 40 years. So yeah, it probably was a long time ago that we last spoke. <laughs> Well, and you've been very, very, very busy, um, you, you know, yeah. with with all of the stuff that's been going on with the the lockdowns and the pandemic. You've you've still been working and you're talking, you're talking. I'm looking at some of this list. You've got, I don't know, a half a dozen in pre-production, half a dozen listed as being filmed right now. Some of them have been announced. You you've you've just not stopped at all. Yes, and thankfully it's because people were so tired of being cooped up at home that production was just crazy this year. I've shot eight movies so far this year. I'm about to do a ninth one in Oregon. And uh, last year, I think I did seven movies despite COVID. So, yeah, it's been amazing. You were, uh, you did one just by zoom christopher i think i know you had a, a, a thought about that one because you had mentioned it to me uh mm-hmm. that she had done just uh, just by zoom what's uh, what's what were you wondering about that yeah um actually uh i i think it was a couple of films that you did by zoom um yes. and i was wondering how you approached um your roles considering you didn't necessarily have any sort of actress to physically bounce off of I did uh, two movies by Zoom this year. One was called Infer- Infernum Obscura, and I play a professor of occult studies. So I just had to, um, you know, read a three-page script. They call me. They're in this haunted house, and they want more information about it. So I tell them about the history of the house and so on. But that was really fun because you get to do everything when 
it's just you on the Zoom. Like I did my hair and makeup. I chose my wardrobe. I was supposed to be a professor of the occult, so I made it look kind of, you know, interesting. And then I dressed the set. I put occult objects behind me and things like that. So it was really creative. And then the other Zoom movie was for Jason Paul Collum. It's a horror comedy called Mark of the Devil 777. And the joke on that one was, I'm the aunt, and the little girl talks to me on Zoom for all the major holidays. So Jason sent me a bunch of seasonal props, like for Valentine's Day, I have a heart necklace. And for Easter, I have bunny ears. And for Christmas, there's a tree in the background. And the joke was that I'm always wearing the exact same sweat clothes. And I've got this huge tumbler of wine that gets increasingly full. And you know, I'm drinking more as the year supposedly goes on. So it's a really funny thing. I can't wait for that one to come out. Well, and having, but, having done as much as you've done, I would imagine that your collection of kitsch and props and occult and various different items has has probably grown to substantial size at this point yeah do you have a do you have a favorite item out of your collection i do yes um i did a movie in 91 called haunting fear which was just re-released actually released for the first time on blu-ray and in it i have a fake rubber knife which i used to stab john michael vincent so Fred Olin Ray, who made the movie, said, I'm getting rid of a bunch of props. Do you want this fake knife? And I said, no, no, that's okay. I don't care. So he puts it on eBay, and there's this fierce bidding war where the price goes up and up and up. And the two guys were bidding against each other to buy the knife to give it to me as a gift. And they didn't realize <laughs> that they both wanted to give me this knife. And so I ended up receiving it anyway after they'd spent quite a fortune to acquire it and I'm like oh great I can't get rid of this damn thing <laughs> <laughs> now is there is there anything like that we you know you didn't want that was there anything you you have such a, a varied career in all of the different things that you've done are there times when Somebody comes up to you at a convention or like this, you have fans who want to buy a prop to give to you, you have these gifts. Has has there been a project or multiple projects where you just don't want to be reminded you were in that one? Um, no, for the most part, I've loved all the films I've done. Um, you know, I used to work like a week on movies, like the Mommy, Mommy 1, Mommy 2, real time. I spent a week on each one or more um, filming those. But nowadays, things happen so much faster because you have the smaller cameras and the smaller light packages. And it's much faster to shoot a movie now than it was 40 years ago. So I only work a day or two or three on films, and it's always pretty pleasant. And if there's any spare time at all, I get to see things in the area. Like I was in Iowa, and I saw the original American Gothic by Grant Wood House and the museum that was there and things like that, where wherever I go, I try to have a little fun, too. Now I I happen to have because you just you just mentioned that because you sent this to me. This is uh -huh. the American Gothic House. Yep. Uh, and and for those of you who may not be familiar with the classics, American Gothic is a very famous painting uh, that was done a long time ago and has been parodied and copied. Here's here's a a stuffed chicken version of that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting because you do get to go various different places around everywhere. I mean, but, but travel, of course, has probably been limited in the last year and a half or so. Ha you mentioned all of the different things, you know, production's getting faster and, and instead of being on there for a week, you're there for, for a day or three days. Are you picking and choosing roles that are more less less substantial but more significant how how what's your criteria now for picking and choosing what what projects you're doing because you're doing a lot of them well i try to do everything that's offered to me but this year i actually had to turn down about four jobs because i couldn't fit them in 
and I really wanted to do them. There was one in Texas that they showed me the locations and it was this old theater and an old house and it was just wonderful, creepy, antique locations. But I had to turn it down because it overlapped another film. Um, but yeah, I just try to do everything I can. I, last year when, Zoom, when uh, COVID started, uh, I had 10 projects get canceled. Three of them were feature films that I was supposed to direct including a remake of Sorority Babes and the Slime bubble Arama, And uh, all the conventions were canceled that whole year. Yeah. They finally started happening again this year. But um, by about July of last year, people were just really eager to get back to work. And even though COVID was still raging, I did three movies uh, last July, two of which were in Texas. Who knows, Texas is just this hotbed of independent <laughs> filmmaking. <laughs> Well, and, and you know you have um, you know Robert Rodriguez down there. You have uh, a very a very active film community both in Austin and in Dallas. So you know the Dallas the uh, the the Texas Film Commission is is always looking for uh, you know ways to support various different indie projects, and mm-hmm. we're starting to see that in other places too. I mean, Kansas City's got a pretty healthy. Uh, indie film scene now granted a lot of people are not doing uh, features a lot of them are doing shorts here but Patrick Ray is here Kendall Sin is here they've both been in the horror genre for a number of years Patrick's got some stuff I think on Shutter right now um, but uh, are are you are you concerned at all with going certain places of the country where you you talk about hotbed of activity are you concerned about the pandemic at all with travel have have you run into issues on that side of things where well maybe i don't want to go to that particular part of the country because reasons right um well last year i did a movie in phoenix uh around August, September, October, somewhere in there. So it was still during COVID. And I was astounded at the freeway traffic. It was bumper to bumper. And I'm like, aren't these people staying home? And they're like, well, Arizona never shut down. The kids still went to schools. People still went to the office. And as a result, Phoenix had very high numbers uh, for illness. So I was very careful being there. And I really prefer it when everybody on set's wearing a mask. Many of the movies I do that you have to have a COVID test and get tested every three days, the crew. Um, when I fly, I practically shrink wrap myself. You know, I'm double masked. <laughs> and I just sit there. I don't get up. I don't eat or drink. That mask stays on. Um, but it, people have really been doing safety protocols. A number of the movies I've done have a COVID officer on set who makes sure that everybody keeps their masks on and that they don't get too close to each other and, you know, that nobody takes unnecessary risks. Right. Well, and Christopher, you look like you've got a, you've got a thought. Oh, uh, yes. I, I was just uh, wondering, since you uh, started traveling more um, to these various locations and you're interacting with uh, different directors, is there a particular type of direction that you are more in favor of or um, something that works with you a, a little bit uh more when it when it comes to roles do you like a lot of intensive direction or would you like to have minimal direction and uh just a work uh sort of i guess method with with your character Mm -hmm. that's a really good question thank you um in the early days i did a lot of work with fred olin ray dave dakota um roger corman charlie band and they were extremely technical directors where they were very proficient knowing what lens to put on the camera and what lighting to use and things like that. So I I really admire that in a director when they know about the camera and they know about the lighting and they can give orders like that. As far as me being an actor, I like it when a director says, "Um, that was good. I like that. Let's do another take where you do it this way, you know, or they tell me a story. So let's say that your dog was just hit by a car and and you love this dog and you're heartbroken, you know, and slightly in shock. So it's things like that where I like it when they sort of describe a scenario that isn't 
happening, but you can kind of relate to it. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that um, Haunting Fear has just been uh, re-released uh, on Blu-ray, actually Blu-ray for the first time. Um, and uh, I actually, I have a copy and it's really, really great. Um, the last 20 minutes are just really, really intense. And um, if, if you could um, kind of give some insight onto how you prepared for those last intense 20 minutes of, of, of your uh, character because she starts out and she's having nightmares throughout the film and the, this fear of a premature burial and then things kind of go off the rails. Um, but it's such a sea change from, you know, a gradual, you know, uh, descent. Um, mm -hmm. I was just wondering um, how, how you got to that place. Okay, um, we made the movie in 1991. It was directed and written by Fred Olin Ray. And I had worked with Fred previously on movies like Warlords. I played Sid Haig's girlfriend um, and, and Spirits and things like that. But he handed me the script and he said, see what you think of this. And I thought he had me in mind for the sexy secretary, which was played by Delia Shepard. But he said, no, I want you to play Vicky which was the biggest role he had ever offered me at that point. And uh, I, I'm in practically every scene. So I knew that I would have to go gradually crazy. My husband is gaslighting me, as they say, making me you know, think I'm going insane. And we didn't shoot movies in order. So on any given day, I would have to say, how crazy am I today? And I was fortunate to have a great makeup artist, uh, John Vulich, who I would look in the mirror and go, oh my God, <laughs> I just love the way that he made me look. And it got worse and worse as I went on, like when I break out of the coffin and so on. So the last 20 minutes or so of the movie, I go on a killing rampage. I'm totally insane. And I chased Delia Shepard down, who's much taller than I am. It was kind of humorous to be chasing this gigantic six foot two girl, and I'm five foot two, and I've got this butcher knife. Um, and then Jan Michael Vincent is in it. I stab him, and in the end, it's a tribute to uh, Karen Black's trilogy of terror because Karen's in the movie playing my therapist, and I'm sitting there stabbing this butcher knife into the linoleum floor. So that was kind of our tribute to uh, to Karen in that. But yeah, just. You know, that's what I love about doing horror movies, where you're called upon to do things that you would never do in real life, like you go insane, or you get bitten and turned into a vampire, or you get possessed by a demon, or you kill someone. So it's really acting, and it's just what you bring to the table, how you interpret it. Um, but it's it's just so much fun. <laughs> let me Let me twist that a little bit and and get into something that might be a little bit uncomfortable because you talk about knives on set you know stabbing people killing people shooting people oh. you know there's there's all of this kind of thing and with horror movies especially you have this you know people die various different weapons are used and whatnot with the alec baldwin thing certainly front and center on on everything let me ask you in all of the time that you've been doing this, what's the usual safety procedures that you've run across? Because I'm hearing some stuff out of this production out here in New Mexico that has me looking a little sideways at it because it doesn't really meet up with anything that I've experienced. But anytime there are weapons, uh, you know, whether it's knives or chainsaws or shotguns or whatever, there's, there's a protocol. And... Have you run across sets where that gets a little bit lax, or has everybody been fairly consistent in how they handle weapons on set? That's a, a really timely question. Thank you for asking that. It's a terrible tragedy what happened on the set of Rust in New Mexico. I have done movies that have guns, and we do have an armor. Usually the guns are fake. Uh, although in a movie, Mob Boss, which was also Fred Olin Ray, I fired a lot of guns. And I actually went to a shooting range and just said, let me shoot every gun you've got up to an AK-47 because I wanted to feel what the, you know, would, would be like physically. Um, but for the most part, the guns are fake. And 
you know, great care is taken. The armorer will open it up and show you it's empty and so on. But in horror movies, the nature is weapons. Yes, there's machetes, chainsaws, knives, all of that. This movie I'm doing in Oregon next week, uh, I get stabbed to death by cult members. And I said, no, you know, I just want to make sure that my safety is important to you and I will not be anywhere near real knives. And the director, Jason Huckins, assured me that no, they were having some foam rubber knives made for when they stabbed me. And if they do pull out a real knife, I'll be far enough away from it and it will be dulled on the blade. Right. Um, famously, my fellow actress, Debbie Rashawn, was horribly injured. She was using a machete and um, it was real. It had a sharp edge on it and her hand slipped when it got bloody and it severed the tendons in her palm. Mm. She had to have many operations. And of course they didn't have insurance. Um, they couldn't you know, contribute anything. So I always take responsibility for my own safety and um, because it's so easy to get injured. You know, they're shooting fast, they're moving. Okay, next, next, on to the next one. So the actors really have to, um, you know, be responsible for that and, and make sure that the director and everybody else is also taking responsibility. Now, you've also been on the other side of it as a producer, as a director. Are those now more, more relevant concerns in, in your mind if you're going to be behind the camera, I'm going to be watching for this kind of stuff as well. I mean, it's not just the people in front of the camera that have got to keep an eye on this now. It's everybody. And, you know, it's those, you know, those safety meetings that the crew has at the beginning of the day. Okay, we're using all, you know, X and so weapons. Here's the protocol for everybody to be either away from set or if you're on set, you have to be over here and all of that. Because, okay. you know, however much anybody wants to say this is on Baldwin, there are so many other people in that chain of custody for the for the weapon and all of the different safety protocols. This feels like it was just a, a cascade failure on several on several levels. Yes, I agree. And I think it's just going to be a, a real mess when they figure out. Because, you know, what I read was several union people had walked off the set. They were replaced with non-union people. Conditions were bad. People had been complaining all along. So these are the problems you get with low-budget movies. Um, but I was surprised that it would happen on an Alec Baldwin film. You know, you'd think that it's a little higher level of professionalism than some of the things I do. Like, I work with a lot of first-time filmmakers. Um, but it can it proves it can happen anywhere anytime with anybody. Yeah. So first time filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Best of them, worst of them, are, are there are there trends that you've identified first time filmmakers generally tend to do this Instead of what normal seasoned professional experience, you know, what's how how much of a difference have you noticed, and what's the what's the most glaring difference between somebody like a Roger Corman and somebody like you know John Schmo Sixpack from uh, from Topeka, you know, doing his very first film. I, I love it when I can work with seasoned professionals who know what they're doing. Um, but I'm really agreeable. If if someone is new at it, um, I might say very gently, don't forget that you need to get a reverse on that shot. And they'll go, oh, oh, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Stuff like that, where um, one of the places, the ways I see amateurism, um, people are not able to raise their own budget. So they resort to crowdfunding. And that's fine, although I think it's too overused right now. Too many people are trying the crowdfunding route. And a lot of them just don't have good perks. If you're going to crowdfund, you've got to work it and constantly be advertising and offering extremely wonderful perks and things like that and really keeping it active and putting time into it. And so I've seen that a lot of people are like, oh, we're shooting this movie. I want you in it. We're doing a crowdfunding. And then it just sits there. They don't do anything. And they don't raise their money. And the movie never happens. 
So that's always disappointing. Um, I, I have noticed um, in uh, your earlier work, the, uh, especially with uh, Fred Olin Ray and uh, Dave Dakota, that uh, they seem to actually kind of rely on, on sort of like a, a troupe of, of actors that, that they would refer to time and time again. When you're going to like a, a first time uh, film director and you're not really sure of... Um, the other actors, how, how do you maintain that camaraderie on the set? Or I mean, do, do you have like a, a, a connection um, with them with just such short of a time during shooting or um, how, how, uh, excuse me, how do you go about doing that as opposed to someone like Fred Olin Ray with um, you would uh, be working with uh, Jay Richardson like over and over again and, and that sort of thing and you've already established um, a camaraderie there. It was really wonderful back in the 80s and 90s because as you say there was a, a certain group of actors especially Linnea Quigley, Michelle Bauer, you know my fellow screen queens and it was wonderful to work with people that you knew there was a sort of shorthand like I'm going to do this and then I'll do this um, when I shot, directed my first film, uh, Personal Demons, mm -hmm. on my first day of shooting, I brought in Linnea and Debbie Rashan to be actors so that I could work with friends on my first day of directing a movie, and it turned out wonderfully. So I do like that. Now I mostly don't know a lot of the actors, but you just step in and you do it. You do your part. And uh, I didn't really fully answer a question earlier about my roles. Um, I love the kind of roles I'm getting offered now, where because I'm not the nubile co-ed that takes showers and you know is in the locker room half naked, uh, I'm getting parts like police commissioners, professors, doctors, um, things like that, people with gravity, and I really, really enjoy that. So um, that's fun. And, and in fact, I'm shooting a movie in Houston, Texas, also part of the hotbed. I've done several movies there with Troy Escamilla. Uh, like Teacher Shortage and Mrs. Claus. This is a movie by Jeremy Sumrall called Hellfire. And the part of Bob was originally written for a man. He's a retired police chief. And he's had a couple of ex-wives and he likes to sit around drinking beer and watching porn. So I would love to know who said, you know, Brick would be perfect for this role. <laughs> um, but they contacted me and said, hey, you wanna play Bob? And I'm like, um, yeah, okay, you know, I appreciate that you want me as a name and you can fit me in somewhere. Um, so they kind of rewrote it to be Roberta, but they didn't change that much. So I still sit around watching porn and I still have a couple of ex-wives. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be really interesting. I've never um, quite played a lesbian police chief before. <laughs> Now let me ask you this because in in today's in today's culture uh, there's there's a lot of back and forth and debate about representation and identity and and that kind of thing and and you raise you raise the point there with the gender swapping and this idea that we've never had strong female characters before current year modern era. I mean, you look back at Rip, you know Ripley and Sarah Connor and Princess Leia and all of that. Have you noticed any changes or evolution in the kind of characters that are populating horror films now? Because you've got the tropes. You've got the, you know, like you said, the nubile co-eds and you've got the, the, you know, the black characters, the usually the first victim and, you know, all of those things that have become almost gags at this point. But have you noticed any kind of an evolution in the kind of characters that are now in these projects? Or are we still looking at the same kind of mix of stereotypes and character types and, and that sort of thing? Um, that's a tough question. Um, there, it was such a watershed year last year with gender issues and race issues and the whole Me Too thing. Um, one thing I noticed that was kind of interesting, I watched the new Slumber Party Massacre 
2021, a remake or a reimagining. Um, and the first 10 minutes before the opening credits, it kind of recaps our movie from 1982. And there's one final girl who in our movie was played by Michelle Michaels. She's white. In the new movie, the remake, she's black. So everybody was saying, well, why didn't they just hire Michelle Michaels to play herself as a survivor whose daughter is now going to a slumber party? Right. So they completely changed the race on that, which is fine. But I just thought that was a really interesting thing to do. And, you know, I got to say, there was a little bit of sour grapes about the new Slumber Party Massacre remake because none of us were involved in it. Even though I died in the first movie, they could have at least given some of us cameos. Me, Deborah DeLiso, Michael Bolella, also Jason Paul Collum and Tony Brown had done a lot of historical research and preserving, archiving the Slumber Party Massacre series, and they were not consulted. So even though it was a female director and a female writer, like our movie had 40 years ago, um, I don't think the movie worked, the remake, the reboot, because when Slumber Party Massacre came out in 82, it was kind of a biting satire on the slasher genre. It was considered a feminist horror movie. And 40 years later, I don't think it works anymore. It's not the same thing. The world has changed. So I think it was kind of a pointless remake, although for what it is, it's kind of interesting. You know, it's exciting. I enjoyed watching it. But, um, you know, that's just the thing. And, and thank God for the Me Too movement. It's never been a better time to be a female in Hollywood where um, Charlie Band called me and said, hey, I'm remaking Sorority Babes. And this was last year. And uh, I said, well, why are you telling me? I died in the movie. I was torn apart by demons. And he said, well, I wondered if you'd like to direct it. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people have been asking me about directing and things. Everything was sidelined last year because of COVID. But hopefully, Sorority Babes will get put back on the slate. And I don't want to talk myself out of a job, but also I think that's another movie that should not be remade because <laughs> it's so perfect the way it is. You know, me, Linnea, Michelle, and the, the boys that are in it, John Wildman, Hal Havens, uh, Andres Jones. It's just great chemistry. And it's just such a perfect movie. So, you know, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to direct the remake. And I said to Charlie, well, why do you want to remake it? It's perfect the way it is. And he said, so that a whole new generation of fans can discover it. All right. Now, on that, on that thought... Hold, hold there because we'll be talking a little bit more about that. We're going to take a real quick break. Uh, I see Pop Culture Avenger. I see Wolf Toy 13. They're both very excited that you're here. So we will be back with more with Brink Stevens right after this. Don't go anywhere. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You know the film is going to end it's going to end badly for all of these people and you don't care. Horribly disgusting, revolting. Did that just happen? There is no kill like overkill. I was so scared that I wanted to take my lower lip and pull it out and pull it over my head so I could cover my eyes. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Hi everyone, it's McKenna Talley from Salacious Crumbs. Just a quick reminder for all the latest Star Wars news and rumor, be sure to check out our show Salacious Crumbs right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV, Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central. Back with Brink Stevens, Scream Queen, Christopher Hoffman here co-hosting. Now, Christopher, you, you look like you were about to ask a question when we started. Let me let you go first, and then I, I have a thought. Sure. Um, now, you, you mentioned that you um, had the opportunity um, to work on Sorority Babes and the Slime Bolorama too, as the, as the director. Um, is that still a possibility? Or um, I, I know everything was kind of shut down. Um, I believe that was part of the Deadly Ten series that was going to go on with Full Moon. Um, is, is that still uh, 
a possibility? Um, and if so, um, will they be using more practical effects or, or like a CGI for the imp or, or that sort of thing? I hope it gets put back on the schedule. Um, COVID derailed everything. So the Deadly 10 was halted. And I spoke in June a few months ago to Charlie Band's assistant, Hugo, and he said that they're hoping to come back to it and possibly next year they would revisit it. I'm wondering if we'll shoot it in Cleveland now um, because Charlie moved to Cleveland and he bought this big Victorian mansion where he's living and shooting movies. And I think that would be perfect for a sorority house. And I imagine there's probably more bowling alleys back in Ohio than there are in Los Angeles. Oh, yes. That would have been a big problem trying to find a bowling alley here. So, yes, I'm sure hoping that it, it gets back on target. Uh, you talk about, uh, you know, Charlie, Charlie wanting to remake for a, a new generation to discover. And now you're getting the the gravitas characters and that sort of thing are are you seeing next generation up and coming performers that have impressed you people we should be watching out for you know we you know be on the lookout for this actor this actress this director any any of the any of the young bucks that have really just impressed you and you want to keep an eye on them hmm. um I was really impressed with uh, Sarah French. She did a movie called Blind for Ms. Marcel Waltz and its sequel called Pretty Boy. And she's wonderful. She's a really good actress. She's absolutely stunningly beautiful. And uh, I think she's, you know, holds the title for the next Scream Queen. How does that feel having that, that moniker on you, that being categorized that way? I seem to recall that when they first started calling us Screen Queens, it, we we didn't really take to it. Uh, you know, it was like, eh, okay, I'm an actor. I'm a horror actor. Maybe I'm a Screen Queen. But now it's a time and a place that it defines, even though Faye Ray was a Screen Queen and maybe Jamie Lee Curtis was and said she didn't want to be called that. Um, Michelle Linnea and I were kind of the original Screen Queens of our day in the 80s. Yeah. And partly into the 90s, and we sort of defined that, the three of us, our trio. I just saw Linnea back in Pennsylvania at the NEPA Circle Drive-In Horror Film Festival, and it was wonderful to spend time with her again. And I saw Michelle about a month ago. She took me out to lunch for my birthday. So I still stay in touch with these ladies, and uh, we were great friends. We worked so well together. We're all different in our way. You know, like Michelle's the sexy one and, and Linnea's the, I don't know, cute, cute little thing. I'm not sure what I am. Exotic, perhaps. But that was great. And I, I really loved, you know, having that uh, in my past, the screen queen thing. I think you could also say that you're the brainy one, given your given your educational background, because you didn't start as an as an actress. You started uh, with what marine biology, I think is what it was. I did, yeah, my career totally snuck up on me. Um, I was in the doctoral program at Scripps Institute of Oceanography and doing my thesis on uh, seals. And I, it just didn't work out at graduate school. So I left school with a master's degree and I moved to Los Angeles in 1980 to marry my college sweetheart, Dave Stevens, who was a graphic artist and did a comic book called The Rocketeer made into a movie by Disney. So we got married, we were married for two years and uh, the, the marriage didn't work out. So I found myself alone in Los Angeles looking for a science job, but of course there is no science in LA, it's all movie making. So one day I walked by a casting office, I wasn't going in it, I just walked past the door and they called me in and put me in a movie the next day. <laughs> so that was how it happened and I thought, well, Sooner or later, somebody's going to point a finger and say, you, you're not a real actress. Get out of here. But nobody did. So I just kept doing it. And uh, it was fun. And I ended up that became the main thing. Well, and you've also dabbled a little bit in cosplay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, yes. Um, in 1973, I um, 
joined the San Diego Comic Con. And in 74, I won first place at their very first masquerade as Vampirella. So they put me in charge of running the masquerade for the next 10 years. I was a 19-year-old kid. I had no idea what I was doing. None of us did. We were all teenagers. So because I was one of the original founding members of Comic-Con, um, I recently did an eight-hour audio history of the early days of San Diego Comic-Con by Matthew Clickstein. It's called Comic-Con Begins. I'm the hostess and the narrator. And that was really wonderful. Um, it's, it's just one great, great history, if you can find it. It's on SiriusXM and on Pandora. And you, um, and you also uh, did uh, narration and I believe um, wrote for um, a series of behind the scenes uh, videos, Shock Cinema. Um, yes. Uh, that were sort of uh, the special features before special features on uh, DVD and, and gave like a glimpse uh, behind the curtain of different productions with uh, Fred Owen Ray and Charles Band and that. Um, how, how did that process come about? Well, you know your stuff, Christopher. Um, <laughs> that just was released on Blu-ray. Thank God for Makeflix, which is J.R. Bookwalter. Um, he's a, one of the few honest distributors around, and so a lot of people are having him put out their stuff. I did this back in the 90s, and uh, I was the off-camera interviewer. So when they're being interviewed, they're talking to me. I'm asking the questions, and occasionally I show up on camera. I do an interview at a video store and in front of the Hollywood sign and stuff like that. So it still holds up today. Um, I especially like Volumes one and two, which are the interviews. Um, the others are kind of clip shows and stuff. But it still holds up, and the stories are really interesting. Like, I think it was Jeff Burr was lamenting that he was doing a low-budget movie and he only had half a million dollars to work with. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, you know, people, you could make five movies for that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, let me ask you this. You mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis before and the whole, the whole Scream Queen thing. We're, we're seeing now with Halloween Kills, with Scream 5, which is actually just being called Scream, you know, these, these sequels that are kind of reboots as well. They're kind of, I guess you could say, requels. They're, they're resetting the table for these various franchises. Is there one that you've done that you could see d going this same route as, at, you know, I mean, you talk about the, the remake of Slumber Party Mask, or the, where you have this now series of films that could launch out of a remake of something that you've done before that that's sort of a reboot but not exactly a reboot and and now we can turn it into this money-making golden egg goose thing um well weirdly um a fan friend robert just wrote to me and said you know there should be a sequel to nightmare sisters because you guys are all still alive at the end of the movie, nobody dies, and the possessed haunted crystal ball is still out there somewhere. So Michelle Linnea and I could play ourselves, grown up, and some new group of kids finds the crystal ball and has trouble and comes to us. So I thought that was a brilliant idea. Um, you know, mostly I die in my film, so it's hard to come back. <laughs> when um, I did Slumber Party Massacre, and then I found out they were doing a part two. And I said, can I be in it? And they're like, Brink, you're dead. And I'm like, well, you never saw me die. Yeah, I screamed, but you never really saw my dead bodies. <laughs> but they didn't buy it. <laughs> what about the sequel to The Rocketeer? Because we're hearing that they're they're talking about doing something there, and the next Rocketeer being uh, a former Tuskegee Airman uh, mm -hmm. to inherit the thing. So basically, it's it's a sequel. It kind of reboots the thing, but it's a sequel. And and like you said, you were married to Dave Stevens for a while. He was the the creator of this. And I don't know if I have this right, but it is this one of his. Is that is that you as Betty? Is that one of your yes. Uh, because you modeled for the character. Yes. Um, for six years before we were married and for about seven years after 
we stopped being married, um, I was his favorite model. I was a muse and he would just use me for everything, not just the Betty. I modeled for all the Betty stuff up till about the movie came out. But I was everything else. I was the cover of DN Agents, um, Alien Worlds, everything, pretty much everything in that 10 year span I modeled for. Um, the Rocketeer is a much loved movie now, but it was not considered successful when it came out. Disney had intended to do a sequel, but when sales were kind of low, they decided not to. So I know that Dave was a little bit disappointed in that. And uh, he passed away in 2008 of leukemia. So he never really, you know, um, got the satisfaction out of it. But now the movie is really highly regarded. Fans love it. And they are talking about doing maybe a TV version or something where a kid finds the rocket pack. And as far as everybody doing sequels, um, Obviously, Hollywood's terrified of having a new, fresh idea, and they want to play it safe. Yeah. But also, there's a demand for these things. Like, I just saw Halloween Kills, and they wouldn't have made it if there wasn't a demand from the audience to see this. And it was interesting, you know, Fred Olenry made a comment on Facebook where he said, you know, they're, they're pulling my old trick here, where they hire Jamie Lee Curtis for, like, one day, one location, and she never leaves it. She's in the hospital room the whole time. So that was kind of interesting, but boy, what a career she's had with that. Yeah. And uh, everyone's kind of looking forward to the third movie in this particular trilogy. But I like how they kind of re erase the past and rewrite it and ignore the movies that came in the middle, um, because clearly this is a beloved character killer, but beloved. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, people people still want to see these movies. Now, you had mentioned that um, that the big studio system, the, the Hollywood, um, isn't necessarily looking for original properties anymore. They're relying more on the franchises or the older franchises that they're rebooting. Um, do you find that uh, working on these lower budget independent productions, are they also relying more on like the various like horror tropes or are you seeing a lot more sort of like a creativity and, and innovation there? When a big studio puts millions and millions of dollars into a production, they kind of have to play it safe because they don't want to lose their investment. Whereas the low budget independent films that I do all across America don't have that restraint, that constriction and one of the things I like the most about them is local color, where uh, whatever state you shoot in, whatever town you shoot in, has its own unique character. And I really like that, where the, the movies all look different. You know, a movie I shoot in Arizona is going to look different than when I shoot in Virginia. And yes, there are a lot of tropes. Like if I see one more movie where kids go on a camping trip and get killed by a guy in the woods, you know, I'll cut my own wrists. Um, but they do try to do something different. And in a low-budget independent movie, the most important thing is a good script. And that's also the easiest thing. You know, have a good script, make sure it's good before you start production on it. And I like the way a lot of people think. You know, these filmmakers are fans, horror fans. They love the genre. They've watched just about every horror movie that's ever come out. And they have their own unique ideas. So that's really exciting to just you know, say, show me what you can do. Show me what you want to see on, on camera, on film. Is there anything that you think has played out a little bit too much? Um, I'm, I'm tired of the gore. Um, although I have to say in Halloween kills, Jason was so angry and, um, I mean, was it Jason or Michael Myers? I'm sorry. It's just, <laughs> um, you know, he's so angry and the kills, like especially the kill on the stairs. That was just amazing. And uh, but yeah, I like more psychological horror movies now, like A Quiet Place and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of burned out on all the gore. Yeah. Um. 
now you you mentioned that you like more of the like the psychological uh uh type of horror movies is there um or are there uh, a few in your catalog that uh that you would recommend as as far as like the on the psychological spectrum is as opposed to like the uh the the gory slashers or mm. uh, i did a movie called spirits and basically it was an homage to uh, the legend of hell house and i was doing the pamela franklin character a psychic medium and I like things like that. I like ghost stories. Um, many of the early movies I did before are comedies where not a lot of people die, you know, and it's, it's all kind of in good fun, like Nightmare Sisters and Sorority Babes. Um, even Slumber Party Massacre 1982 had a certain amount of humor where they're eating the pizza off the dead pizza delivery guy, um, things like that. So, they, yeah, I, I like for a comedy and I like ghost stories and things like that. Now, um, Vinegar Syndrome recently uh, released uh, a really beautiful transfer of um, Grandmother's House. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, you you play a mysterious woman in that that is, is kind of, for lack of a better term, stalking this uh, young brother and sister. Um, now that performance um, doesn't have a lot of dialogue uh, in it, but you really managed to achieve like a kind of like menace throughout the film, even though you're, you, you know, not necessarily verbally interacting with anyone. Um, when you're given a role that is sort of like um, in grandmother's house where you don't have a lot of dialogue or like in, um, uh, witch House Three, um, mm -hmm. where you played uh, like a, a, a witch spirit. How do you prepare for something like that, as opposed to something that where you come in and you've got like a couple of pages of lines and stuff like that? How do you approach a character that way? Yeah, that's um, a tough when you don't have a lot of lines. It's just a physical thing. Uh, I love Grandmother's House, and I'm so happy that it was re-released. I did a behind-the-scenes interview for it, special features. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it, because it's horror in broad daylight. And it was directed by Peter Rader, who wrote Waterworld, the Kevin Costner movie, which he first took to Roger Corman. And Roger said, oh, Peter, I can't make this movie. It would cost $4 million, <laughs> which is you know funny, because Waterworld was one of the most expensive flops ever made. Um, but we shot in Redlands, California, and uh, I play a woman with two teenage kids who is stalking them and trying to be, reunite with them. They're her children, and she's been in a mental institution. So I forget how I first heard about the project, but I went on an audition for the producer, director, writers, and they thought I was too young to have teenage children. So they liked what I did. I just kind of, they gave me some improv stuff to do. Look scared, look mean, look angry, you know, pace around. And uh, I came back and I put some gray in my hair with streaks and tips, you know, the spray. And they gave me some different stuff to do, sort of um, improv, pantomiming, different things. They, they would have me read completely inconsequential stuff, not any lines from the script, but just read passages from something just so they could watch me and see. And they said, God, we really like you, but I, we, you're just still too young. So they laughed because every time they called me back, which was four times, I had grayer and grayer hair, more and more streaks and tips. So finally, on the very last callback, the fourth time they saw me, I, um, I was doing something and I turned away from the camera and I spun back around and I slammed my hands down on the coffee table in front of them where they're sitting on the sofa and they all jumped and they went, oh my God, you've got the part. <laughs> <laughs> does, does that uh, audition process ever get easier does it get old i mean are, are you still are you still chasing parts or are people coming to you saying oh we definitely want to have you in there i mean i i even have a script in the file cabinet somewhere that's got a character that was that was written with you in mind very 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 long time ago a, a russian scientist and i'm like 
there's got to be these people out there who have who have crafted characters specifically for you for Lene and and the the various different uh um you know Barbara Crampton 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 yeah, yeah. so is it is it easier to find parts now or is it a challenge because now you you're looking for things that are specific or or how how are you going about picking your projects uh, there was a definite shift where in the early days I would have to audition for things and I just hated the audition process uh, now you know you do self tape auditions on your phone and you send them to casting agents but before you used to have to drive across town wait for an hour in a room full of people who look just like you and then not get the part. So it was just heartbreaking. But then when I worked with Fred Olin Ray and Dave Dakota and Charlie Band, they knew my work and they would hire me frequently. Since then, I have such a huge body of work that pretty much everybody has seen my movies and they know what I'm capable of doing. So now they approach me. And if a part wasn't written for me, which it sometimes is, they know that they want a name in the movie. I'm sort of the name on the box. And so they'll say, well, here's three characters that you could play, pick one, and things like that. So I don't have to audition anymore. I pretty much have you know, my choice of things, which is wonderful. So what's coming out uh, soon that we should be on the lookout for? Mm. Um, well, Mark of the Devil 777, um, Ebola Rex versus the Murder Hornets, um, Arachnado <laughs> 2, Apex Predators. Um, um, in Texas, I did um, oh, uh, Teacher Shortage has come out, uh, Xenophobia, Joe Castro's movie, lots of stuff. The problem, too, now is that sometimes movies don't go direct to DVD anymore. They go direct to streaming. So I would say just enter my name on the streaming channels. I know Slumber Party Massacre is running on one of the stations, and I think Grandmother's House was just running or still is. Uh, or on Netflix, just put my name in on Netflix, and you know you can see some stuff there. And where can we find you online? You mentioned there's, a, there's an Instagram account that's been set up, but there's nothing on there. How do, how do people find you if they want to follow you, you know, social media or anything, I, I haven't been able to find you anywhere. Oh, well, I have a website, um, www.brink.com, and I try to update it as often as I can. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. I have several groups. One group is called Brink Stevens, and another is called the Brink Stevens Appreciation Society. I have a public Facebook page that anyone can see. So I try to keep those updated. And Instagram, it's Stevens Brink. And yes, someone set it up for me, and I, I haven't figured out how to get into it. So there's no posts on it, but other people you know, have, have linked to me on that. So All right. yeah, Re I'm out there. <laughs> Real quick in the chat, I see uh, Wolftoy13 says, this is Brink's friend, Jeremy, Jerry Mendoza in Orlando. I see William Stoneburner in there. Brink is a great talker. Love listening to her thoroughly pleasant and engaging voice. Uh, pop culture of interest, uh, pop culture Avengers says slumber party massacre was on the sci-fi channel recently. He thinks so, uh, there are places where you can find her and we're glad that, uh, that she was able to stop by today. Brink, what, what's the next thing for you? You say you're going to go start shooting what? Yeah. Next week I go to, uh, Eugene, Oregon and I'm shooting cross hollow for Jason Hawkins and I play a, a kind of disagreeable woman. Uh, and I, I don't want to give it away, but I get killed by <laughs> religious cultists. <laughs> okay. All right. We will look forward to that. Christopher, thank you very much for jumping in here with this. And uh, we do want to thank Brink for her time today. Thanks very much for being here. Happy uh, Halloween. Oh, yes. And uh, thanks to everyone who tuned in. I really appreciate you guys. You know, I do all this for you. Mm -hmm. And we do want to remind everyone that coming up on Saturday, the brand new season of Foreign Bodies, Leslie and Tim going to France to talk about some horror films that were made there. And last night we dropped a brand new H2O podcast, a special Tuesday edition. We were discussing 
Dune Part One from Denny Villeneuve's uh, Craft and, and Craft House. So we do invite you to check out that. If you are new to the channel, we do invite you to subscribe and have your notifications turned on. And uh, we will have a number of programs in the works all the time here. We pretty much drop drop something almost every day. You can find us on socials. If you have feedback you want to send to us uh, by email, live from the bunker at sci-fi-for-me.com. Check us out over on the .com as well as uh, Odyssey and uh, the various different socials and, and sign up for our newsletter. And we will do all of this again tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.